Let me tell you why I don't like U-turn signs. They're always at the place where you need to make a U-turn. That's what I don't like about U-turn signs. And I suspect that that's because that happens to be a place where everybody's making U-turns. Why? Because something back there in the road makes it really hard to do what you're supposed to do. And then suddenly you realize you're going to make a U-turn. And everybody's doing it and they don't like it. So they put a sign there that says no U-turn. Here's the other reason I don't like U-turn signs. Nobody listens to them. Nobody obeys them. If you're driving on a big old highway, I-71, 270, I-70 over toward Indianapolis or Pittsburgh, and you miss your exit and there's not another exit for 10 miles, you're looking for a U-turn sign because you know that U-turn sign is on a little gravel strip where you can make a U-turn. <laughs> the other thing that's annoying about U-turn signs are the ones, there aren't many of them, that say U-turn okay or <laughs> U-turns are good here. You don't need that sign. Nobody needs that sign. Because when a person needs to make a U-turn, they make a U-turn. Here's why I think that's true. Here's why I think you should be able to make a U-turn wherever you want. Because it's part of God's design. God's economy. God's world. The way God has designed this world to work U-turns are actually a central part of the whole gig. In fact, God loves U-turns. In fact, it says that God's mercy and his... It, what is it? It says, the Bible says, Paul said in the book of Romans to the Roman church, hey, don't you know that the kindnesses of God, the mercies of God, the compassion of God leads, I'm paraphrasing, leads people to U-turns. U-turns are a big part of God's kingdom, God's world. Also a part of God's economy, God's world, God's design are the signals, the signs, the indications, the warnings, if you will, that a U-turn is necessary. You don't need a sign. God's going to let you know. It's built into the whole system. Here's an example. I, I, I was probably in elementary school, maybe late elementary school, fifth or sixth grade. I don't know what got caught in the tree because all sorts of stuff got caught in the tree when I was a kid. I don't know if it was a rocket coming back down to the ground. I don't know if it was a kite. I don't know if it was a, a kickball or something, but something was caught in the trees. I started climbing the tree, went up a couple flights of, you know, limbs, and now I'm shimmying out onto this limb to try to get to whatever it was that was stuck in the tree. I was a small kid. I could get out there pretty far. But at some point, that branch started to bend, which to me meant be real careful. <laughs> and then I heard a crack. I heard wood cracking, which was another signal that I should be very, very, very careful. No, right? That signal, that should have signaled me to turn around, but I didn't. The signal was there. I kept walking, I kept climbing, and guess what? I ended up with a broken collarbone, which was also the mercy of God <laughs> because I was heading straight to the ground and my collarbone hit the last possible limb on the tree. <laughs> flipped me over, so I landed on my butt. 
broken collarbone was actually not a bad way out of that situation. Point being, there was a crack. There was a sign. There was a signal. Should have done a U-turn. Didn't. Ended up very badly. These kind of signs are all over the place. You've got them in your car. That light comes on. That's a sign. It's time to change dredge. It's time to do something different. You're speeding and the traffic cop pulls you over before you got in a wreck, before you hurt somebody, before you got a ticket, before you lost your license, and he gives you a warning. It's time to change the behavior. Your neighbor says, hey, can you watch my plants while I'm away, my, my flowers, my, my garden, which, first of all, don't ask me or my wife to do that. It, we will, you'll lose them. But so your neighbor asks you to do it, and you attend, start attending to it, and the third or fourth day you go over there, you realize the flowers are wilting, changing color. Those are signs. Something needs to change. Of course, the, the most obvious metaphor is the, is the clueless person on the raft floating down the river with headphones on, a little bit inebriated, you know, noise is too loud, the awareness is a little uh, tampered down, and they can't hear the roar of the waterfall that's just a quarter of a mile down the, the river, right? There is a sign. There might even be people on the, on the, on the shore. <laughs> you, hey, you got to turn. God is always giving signs and signals and warnings. It's all built into his system because he loves to see people make U-turns. In every case, and in countless more examples, you can see clues and abilities to have your awareness raised for a future of demise. And you have a choice to continue or to make a U-turn. More specifically, to admit that what you're doing, where you're headed, isn't right. And that it's upon you to choose right. Because it's best for you. In biblical terms, this turning around, U-turns, it's called repentance. I've been thinking a lot about repentance lately for a number of reasons. The biggest one is I think God is putting the concept of repentance back into the minds and hearts of the church and the people of the church where we have been a little bit tired or slow or dulled in our intentionality with that discipline. The, the whole concept of rechurch. The, the, the podcast and our initiative that presses into next year is really organizational repentance. It's us as a church looking at the signs and the signals and the warnings and trying to figure out how it is we should U-turn where necessary. I, I got a great email, and I've, I've mentioned this already once before, uh, from a very good friend. Uh, and she said, I think the emphasis on the next generation, on the postmodern generation or whatever we call it, 
is a good thing and we need to affirm that value. But she says we need to affirm the value and worth of every generation. And here's what she says. Because all people of all ages are equally loved, valued by our Heavenly Father, and he longs that all come to repentance. That caught my attention in a big way. Not just with regard to our, our concern about the post-millennial, post-church generation, but the idea that everybody needs to be in the space of repentance because U-turns are a big part of God's way of doing things. There's really a very natural progression from re-church to repentance. It's an organizational idea of repentance or of U-turns, of reconsideration, to a personal one. And I want to challenge you, Vista, and anybody else who's willing to listen, to think and consider the part of repentance in your own spiritual journey. If there's a, if there's a creator God, and I believe there is, but just if you're not in that space, just stay with me for a second. If there is one, it stands to reason that his creation has a right and best way to be, right? The human body, he created it. It's designed to operate and function according to, well, a number of things, but for example, certain nutritional intakes, physical recovery times, right? Rest. And it has warning signs for those. There are, there are warning signs for our, our poor nutrition. There are warning signs for a lack of proper rest. There are signals to tell us the best way for the creation of God that we call our body has been abandoned. And we need to make a U-turn. God has designed this world to be inhabited by people that behave a certain way. We, we call those ways ethics and morals. And when we don't live according to God's way, there are signals, there are signs, right? You can see the interpersonal deterioration that happens. You can see anger, divorce, murder. <laughs> Those aren't supposed to be necessarily in some sort of sequential order, right? All the interpersonal things that happen are as a result of us not making the U-turns, not paying attention to the signals that God sends to have us turn back to his way. This one will make sense. To Americans in particular right now, societies, God designed everything to function according to a certain way. Civilization, populations flourish and reflect the heart of their creator when they reflect the ethics of the creator. When the systems and the people and the groups and the authorities operate according to God's way of truthfulness, generosity, fairness, work, sexual purity, humility, 
fiscal moderation, just to name a few. What happens when people and societies and nations don't behave according to the ways of God? Don't make any U-turns. Don't pay attention to any of the signals. What happens? The signals get louder. God is a good and gracious and kind and merciful God. The signals get louder. When you look around and you see corruption, you see social deterioration, you see infighting and impasse, it's time for a U-turn. It's a warning light. It's a wilting plant. It's a cracking branch. And Jesus himself was a signal, a sign that there was something far more than the aims and the loves of this world. That there was something eternal. And to put our trust in him, that resurrected son of God, that showed there's something beyond this world, something beyond the grave. He was a sign that all that this world offers isn't all that there is. Recognizing the signals that identify wrongfulness and responding to those signals with new or changed behavior is what God calls repentance. Wrongfulness. In very basic terms, wrongfulness, according to God's design and God's direction, is essentially sin. Sin is anything that is out of alignment with God's design, God's directives. Jesus pressed that even to a deeper space, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, which you read about in the first, well, chapters 5, 6, 7 of, of Matthew. He says, look, it's not even just about your outward behavior. When your heart and your mind are out of alignment with God, that's sin. Some of you do a really nice job of keeping your outer world pretty clean, pretty neat, pretty disciplined. But I think you would admit, along with me, pretty quickly, what happens in my mind, in my heart, is oftentimes not reflected outwardly. And in some ways, thank goodness. But Jesus says, look, that you at the core are out of alignment with God, and that's sin. And you need some U-turns. Here's going to be our working definition for the next four or five weeks as we dig into this concept of repentance. Repentance is an awareness and an acceptance of our sin. An awareness and an acceptance of our sinfulness that causes us to confess our sin to turn away from our sin back to God and build new habits in accordance with him and his ways. Let me say that again. This is our working definition of what repentance is. It's a pretty robust idea. It's an awareness and an acceptance of our sin that causes us to confess our sin, 
turn away from our sin back to God and build new habits according to his ways and his designs. The book of Isaiah in chapter 53 tells us who has to be concerned about this issue of turning back to God. Who among us has to be uh, disciplined in repentance? It says, all have sinned and strayed away from God. Like sheep, we've all drifted away and continue to drift away. We, we find the things of this world very alluring. We find the temporary fixes that this world provides very compelling. And we drift away. Fortunately for us, God's patience, his compassion, his long-suffering, the scripture says, leads us, calls us, warns us of repentance. And God has made a way for U-turns in the life of the creation that he loves so much. Repentance is a critical, I can't say this with greater emphasis, critical, crucial, central, unavoidable practice for godly living. Living in general. You could say it's our only hope. The Bible does. The Bible literally says repentance is our hope. Turning back to God. The ability to turn back is given by the grace of God. And if I'm doing my job here, <laughs> never quite know if I am, and you're tracking, repentance is a wonderful thing. The crack of the limb, the illumination of the light, the words of the traffic cop, These are beautiful and wonderful things that if heeded, lead, to, lead us away from demise and into something good. Repentance is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's a, it's a life-giving thing. The discipline of repentance is a privilege. It's God's provision for recalibrating and reestablishing a life that leads to holistic health, not only personally, but organizationally and societally. Is that a word? Without repentance, we keep climbing out the limb. We keep driving too fast. We let things die. Again, Paul to the Romans, don't you know it is the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience that leads to repentance? Without repentance, we settle for temporary happiness temporary well-being. We end up in delusions that no serious harm will come to us. All along, sacrificing what God wants to offer, deep, sustained joy, contentment, true 
fulfilling life, the things that our soul longs for, God wants to provide if we make the U-turn. Our goal, my goal, throughout the next month in this series is not to only to reacquaint you with the concept and the discipline of repentance, but for you to do it. For us to do it. For our city to do it. For our nation to do it. My goal is for us to become aware of our sin. Aware of every little thing that is out of alignment with God and make no excuses, make no rationalizations and confess it. Turn from it. Turn back to God. Change our heart and mind and behavior going forward. My goal is that we would get, a, get rid of the ignorance that we have about where we're sinful. To desist in justifying selfish ends. To demand an accounting from one another. To ask the Spirit to enlighten us. So that we can repent and enjoy all that God has for us. I'm not going to do much more than that today with the exception of showing you in Scripture in a, in a quick little survey how important, how critical, how central, how, uh, how high of a priority it is. Let me just spend a little time on that. And then we'll come back and get after it again for the next few weeks. Let me start in the New Testament. Just before Jesus is identified as the Messiah by John, we experience and we see in all the Gospels the ministry of John, which is repentance. The ministry of repentance comes before the ministry of restoration. John said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's right there. God has shown up in the flesh, in Jesus. It is within your reach, but you've got to repent. You've got to let go. You've got to break free. You've got to turn away. You've got to repent or you're going to miss it. You must repent, John says. He appeared in the wilderness, this very unique guy, John the Baptist, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it says in Mark chapter 1. The whole countryside listened to John. All of Jerusalem went out to hear him and confessed their sin. John was fairly harsh on those who were self-righteous and prideful. He called them a brood of vipers. He says, you, uh, he warned them of the coming wrath. The, the limb is cracking. He says, look, you need to produce a different kind of fruit in keeping with repentance. Your, your life can produce something good, but you've got to repent. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, don't, don't think that you're so good, you're so religious, you're so loved by God that you avoid or are exempt from this process. And they say, oh, okay, what should we do? And he says, anyone who has two shirts should share the one that has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. 
He tells out tax collectors about how they should collect. He talks about soldiers and what they should do. He talks about those who have money, those who don't. John quickly goes into the idea that, look, repenting is leaving aside, letting aside, turning away from certain types of behaviors to other behaviors that are in alignment with God. He just illustrates what it is. It's very real. It's more than an attitude. It's more than a feeling. I'll get back to that. And when Jesus took over the, the, the message, John was th thrown in jail. He didn't leave it behind either. Jesus said in John chapter 3, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they start over. Unless they, they leave this worldly uh, reality and turn to what he says, a spiritual one. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. All the goodness of the gospel. All that Jesus brought to bear. All the freedom. All the, all the forgiveness. Right? He, he expresses this good news. And he says it this way. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. Think about, always remember, John ministry of repentance, then Jesus, ministry of restoration. You can't have one without the other. Jesus repeats the, the concept and the idea of repentance and again and again through the scriptures. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 13, 15, 16, 17. Turn from that, Jesus says, to me. Turn from that to me. Repent and receive from me. Peter picked up the torch. Acts chapter 2. He says to, to, to all of these people, he's doing one of his first big, you know, uh, sermons. And he tells them, look, you have, you have crucified our Lord and Messiah. And it, it, it killed them. It just cut them to the heart. And he said, what should we do? What should we do? And Peter says, repent. He repeats it in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 11, he's preaching, and the Gentiles, those that aren't, weren't even the people of God, they're discovering God is even granting them the opportunity to repent. Paul picks up the baton and says things like this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Divinity is not found in the stuff of this world, no matter how shiny it is, Paul says, no matter how much you like it, no matter how much you have or how much you can get. He's an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul later in, in the, the history that we cover, that's covered in Acts is virtually his neck is on the chopping block. He's talking to King Agrippa, uh, uh, one of the highest rulers that, that they'd really ever even engaged. And Agrippa's giving Paul an opportunity to talk and to make his case. And I'm going to read this in entirety because I want you to catch the, th the thrust of the whole thing. Paul says, I too was convinced 
that I, I, all I had to do was possible to, I, I, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. Paul said, I was convinced that that was what I was supposed to do. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when, they were put, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I, I hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He's talking to King Agrippa. He says, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, and we fell to the ground. A sign, a warning. You talk about a warning light, right? We fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's just a metaphor that says, why are you trying to make the way that I'm going not your way? Paul said, who is this? And the response was this, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you and I am sending you to open the eyes of all people, turn them from darkness to light, turn them from the power of Satan to God so that they can receive forgiveness of sins. So then, Paul says to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, to the warning sign for me to make a U-turn. First, I, I warned those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and all Judea and then to all the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and to demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. I stand here and testify to small and great alike. With his neck on the chopping block, he says to the whole world, Paul says to the whole world, you need to repent. It is, the idea of repentance is replete in the New Testament as well as the old. You can find it in Jeremiah 8 and 15 and 18. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? Like the clay in the hand of a potter, so you are in, the hands, in my hands, Israel. And if any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, and that nation I warn to repent, does repent, I will relent. The story of Jonah is a story of repentance through and through. Jonah's own repentance, right? God says, go tell Nineveh to, to repent. And Jonah goes the opposite direction. And eventually God turns him around in the belly of a whale. And he goes back and he tells the Ninevites to repent of their evil behavior. And they do and God relents. The psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent, when I didn't confess what was going on. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. The signals were there, the psalmist says. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. 
Then I acknowledged my sin. And you didn't cover up my iniquity. You said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Ezekiel 14, 18, Isaiah 59. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. Hosea, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? <laughs> Have I made myself? I'm just reading. I mean, this is critical to God's kingdom life, repentance. We're going to go into this a lot more in the coming weeks. But let me just throw out one very sober warning, foreshadow a little bit about what's to come, and then we'll close down for this week. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. We're going to go into this in great detail, but here is the sobering reality. When you ignore the warnings of God, when you ignore the whispers of God, when God puts up a do this U-turn sign and we ignore it, our heart gets harder. The harder our heart gets, the more desensitized it gets to the point where we start to not be able to hear God's voice and see his signs as clearly. And eventually the scriptures say our heart ends up dead. When we fail to repent, when God calls us to repent, we end up in a place where we can no longer repent. That's pretty scary. In the coming weeks, we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about who needs to repent, when to repent, how to repent, and what comes as a result of repentance. What comes are these four things. Again, we're going to go into this much more. Forgiveness, refreshment, life, restoration. It's all good. We end up back in the warm embrace of God where we should be experiencing the joy and the peace and the wisdom and all that comes from Him. That's where we're headed, church. We're all prodigal sons and daughters. You know the story. The Father is waiting, just waiting for repentance. Not waiting to condemn, not waiting to wag the finger, not, not waiting to punish, waiting to forgive, waiting to embrace, waiting to celebrate, waiting to share all the wonderfulness of his kingdom with his children. Think about it, church. See you again soon.